Morning, everyone. So, we're halfway through our series on Matthew's Gospel. Jez kicked us off at the start of the year, at the end of chapter 4, and we've been since making our way through the Sermon on the Mount. So this morning, I have the privilege of leading us through chapter 6, verses 1 to 18. So, as you would have heard in the reading, this passage is about three topics, giving, praying, and fasting. And as you may have noticed, the teaching around each topic is very similar. So unfortunately, I don't have time to go through all 18 verses this morning, so I've narrowed it down a bit for us. The title I've been given this morning is Give Out and Give Up. So if you give out, you're distributing something that belongs to you. In other words, you're showing generosity. And then give up in this context It's not like, oh, it's too hard to give up. But it means giving something up to God, surrendering something you have, or we could say sacrificing. So there are a number of ways we could tackle these ideas throughout the passage. We could talk about giving out money or whatever other resources could help the less fortunate. We could talk about giving up food or anything we felt called to surrender as part of a time of fasting. But what I felt led to focus on this morning is what we give up when we pray. And because we're studying prayer, it would be remiss of me not to kick us off with a bit of prayer. So let's all bow our heads for a minute. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity to explore your incredible word. We thank you for Matthew's gospel and the amazing words of your son Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. I just pray that you'll be with us this morning and guide us and teach us uh, all about prayer. Amen. So before I launch into this passage, uh, I'd encourage you to get a Bible in front of you and turn to Matthew 6 uh, so you can keep track as we go through. Uh, I think it's page 970 in the church Bibles. So while you're finding the passage, uh, what do we give up when we pray? The first thing that might come to mind is time. We give up our time to be in Father God's presence. But actually, what I think this passage is primarily teaching us is that prayer is about giving up or sacrificing pride. To show you what I mean, let's look at verses 5 and 6. So here we have the motive for praying, or how our hearts should be as we approach prayer. So it says, And when you pray... Do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father, who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Okay, so a couple of questions might arise from these verses. Firstly, Jesus says to pray in secret, but clearly we don't always do that. In fact, I prayed publicly just now. So are we somehow breaking Jesus' command here when we pray in groups? Second, what reward is Jesus talking about? Do we lose our salvation somehow by praying in the wrong way? So the first question, praying in secret. To help us understand what Jesus is saying here, I need us to transport ourselves to first century Israel and put ourselves in the shoes of a faithful Israelite at the time. Or should that be sandals? 
Traditionally, as a faithful Israelite, you would pray at set times, three times a day, every day. Now, this thrice-daily practice can be quite disruptive, so you might choose to just stay at home and pray. But then, if you're just at home, I mean, sure, God could hear your prayer, but then what about everyone else? How will people know that you're a faithful Israelite if they don't see you praying? And a lot of people head to the temple and the synagogues at the daily prayer times. So it would make sense to head there for the next prayer session and really make sure you're seen. But even then, how will people know you're truly devout unless you really project and bellow your prayers out in the synagogue, showing how many, Torahs, uh, how many quotes from the Torah you know by heart? Or better still, you could stop on the street corner on the way to the synagogue and shout your prayers there, because then even more people will know what a faithful Israelite you are. That is the hypocritical attitude Jesus is warning against in verse 5. Prayer is about being seen and heard by the Father, not by other people. Those praying to be seen by others are hypocrites. So Jesus' answer to this hypocritical approach to prayer is, go into your room, close the door, and pray. Which makes sense. Pray away from other people, and there's no temptation to show off. Having said that, there are two factors that might stop uh, us taking Jesus' statement here at face value. The first thing, Jesus prayed in public. Later in Matthew's Gospel, he gives thanks to God out loud before distributing the bread and fish to the different crowds in chapters 14 and 15. Second, in Jesus' day, most people didn't have separate private quarters in their homes, and Jesus himself was a nomad without a permanent home. So Jesus isn't saying, never pray unless you do it at home with the door closed. He's saying, don't use prayer as an excuse to show off, like the hypocrites. If you're at home and you're privileged enough to have your own room with a closable door, that's a great option for private prayer. But that's not the only form of prayer. At Portswood, we pray at the front during services, together during life groups, as part of our church forums, and of course, the heartbeat prayer meetings. During these times, Jesus says, don't concern yourself with how you're coming across to others, only on addressing your Father God. In other words, give up your pride. Okay, so our next question about the reward. Verses 5 and 6 say that pious prayers will be rewarded by the Father, while hypocritical prayers have received their reward in full. So what's this reward being talked about here? Do we lose our salvation by praying in the wrong way? So let's take these two rewards in order. What have the hypocrites already received? In verse 5, Jesus talks about the hypocrites being seen by others. In other words, they've already received the reward they were hoping for, the praise of human beings. But what reward do they miss out on that the Father gives to the pious prayer? Well, I'll tell you what it's not. In this passage, Jesus is not referring to the reward of eternal life. Often in secular media, we get this idea of heaven being a reward for good behavior. But that's not actually what the Bible says. In God's word, salvation comes by faith, not by works. Acts 16 says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Hebrews 10, we are those who have faith and preserve our souls. Ephesians 2, by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works. So if Jesus isn't referring to eternal life here, 
what reward do we get for pious prayer? Well, we don't exactly know. Elsewhere in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he talks about an extra reward in heaven and the idea of treasures in heaven. So it's a fair bet he's referring back to that rather than some earthly reward. But we don't know exactly what form this heavenly reward will take. But whatever it is, it's from Father God. How sad it would be to miss out. So what Jesus is saying in these verses is, when it comes to prayer, you have a choice. Give up your pride or give up your reward in whatever form that takes. Okay, so we've looked at the motive for prayer, not to get attention from others or worry about what they think, but to give up our pride and come into the presence of Father God. So armed with our motive, let's get into the Lord's Prayer, our method for prayer. Although, before we get into the actual words of the prayer, I just want to draw your attention to the bit before it, so the first part of verse 9. This, then, is how you should pray. Now, I was brought up in a tradition where almost every Sunday the congregation would pray the Lord's Prayer aloud together. But that's not actually what Jesus is asking us to do here. He says, this is how you should pray. Or like I said, this is the method for praying, not what you should pray. The Greek literally means the manner in which you should pray. The Lord's Prayer is a model It's a template to inform what we should be lifting up to Father God. Having said that, there's nothing actually wrong with saying the literal words of the Lord's Prayer aloud, in principle. It's a good way to memorize a bit of scripture and remind ourselves what we should be saying to the Father. But I'm sorry to say, growing up, most of the time, I prayed it like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. So you get the idea. That's a bad attitude to the prayer. Saying it by rote, without meaning it, without giving a thought to what we're actually praying. In fact, this is the very thing Jesus warns against in verse 7 when he tells us not to babble thoughtlessly through our prayers. So if we're going to say the Lord's Prayer aloud, we should say it with conviction. More importantly, though, we should use it as Jesus intends, as a template for our prayer life. So with that said, if the Lord's Prayer is a template, what's in that template? What is it that Jesus is asking us to pray? And through these words, what is he teaching us about pride? Okay, so the second half of verse 9 again, but with conviction. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what do you notice about that? The very first thing Jesus tells us to pray is not to ask him to fulfill our needs. It's all about the God we're praying to, his name, his kingdom, and his will. How annoying is it when you get into a conversation with someone and all they talk about is themselves? Or let's be honest, how annoying are we when we get into a conversation with someone and all we talk about is ourselves? We've all done it. Equally, Jesus is saying, when you approach the Heavenly Father, don't just rattle off a list of things that you want. Give up your pride and stop making your prayers all about you. Instead, approach the Heavenly Father with humility. Approach him first 
with the things he wants. To be known as our Heavenly Father, to be hallowed or treated with the highest honor, for his kingdom to come on earth, both in the end times sense and in the sense of us bringing a bit of his kingdom into people's lives right now, and for us to do his will. So that's point one of the Lord's Prayer. Give up your pride and approach the Father with humility. Verse 11, give us today our daily bread. Now I think it's safe to say that bread here is a stand-in for all our basic needs, in the same way that the quail and the manna, or bread from heaven, provided everything the Israelites needed in the desert. Without modern preservation methods, procuring food in Jesus' time was much more of a day-to-day thing than it is for us. More so, in the desert, the Israelites were provided with only enough manna for each day. So how are we supposed to pray this prayer today, in the era of tinned food and fridge freezers? Well, I think what this prayer does is remind us that even though most of us don't lack our basic needs food, water, shelter, warmth. We only have those things because God gave them to us. And in his wisdom, he could choose to take those things away. One hard lesson we've learned over the last two years is not to take for granted another of our basic needs, health. Equally, God could choose to take away our homes, our food, our access to clean water. And of course, many people in this country and across the world don't have those things. God chooses to grant us each breath we take, and he chooses to give us the opportunities and intelligence to earn money to live and uphold the infrastructure that turns that money into necessities. So let's give up our pride in our possessions, our well-being, and our circumstances, and pray every day for our everyday needs, which we only have because God chooses to give them. Verse 12, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Now the Greek here could be translated debts or sins. The NIV goes for debts because that's what our sin creates, an obligation or debt to God, one we cannot possibly repay. Thankfully, Jesus' death grants us the opportunity to seek forgiveness and have that slate wiped clean. But there's a condition We have to forgive our debtors first. This idea is expanded on in verses 14 and 15, so let's skip ahead a little and read there. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. So again here is a call to give up our pride. All of us have had wrong things done to us, And yes, forgiveness is hard. But if we don't forgive others, who are just as much children of God as we are, whether they acknowledge it or not, why should God forgive us? Both we and the people who sin against us are sinners. We have common ground as sinners in need of forgiveness. And what is forgiveness if not the ultimate act of humility, the ultimate giving up of pride? So our challenge is to let go of our grudges against those who have wronged us and seek forgiveness from the one we have wronged, our Father in heaven. Verse 13, 
Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, it's important to note that lead us not into temptation doesn't mean God tempts us. It means God tests us, and he allows Satan to tempt us. We should pray that we're delivered from this temptation so we don't fall into sin. I think the wording of the New Living Translation is clearer here. It says, do not let us yield to temptation. In other words, do not let us fall to Satan's tempting. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us we won't be tempted beyond what we can bear. But we're sinful human beings who so often give in to temptation long before the point of unbearableness. The passage goes on to say that God will provide a way out. Giving up our pride is admitting that the only way out of temptation is through God. We can't resist it by ourselves. We must lean on his strength to make it out the other side. Now, if like me, you grew up saying the Lord's Prayer aloud, so you have it memorized, you might be looking at your Bible thinking, hold on, I think there's a bit missing. But then if you look more closely, you'll probably have a little footnote next to verse 13, which then gives us the last bit of the prayer, which isn't in the earliest manuscripts we have access to. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, why these words appeared in later manuscripts and not earlier ones, we don't know. But we do know that these words are God-breathed because they're taken from another biblical prayer, that of King David in 1 Chronicles 29. Yours is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. So this extra David-inspired bit is usually included when the Lord's Prayer is said corporately aloud because it brings the prayer full circle. It's an acknowledgement that all these things we've prayed are God's. Heaven, earth, our daily provisions, and even our debts, which God took upon himself in the person of Jesus. Okay, so that's the Lord's Prayer. Through this template and the surrounding words, Jesus is teaching us to give up our pride when we pray. To approach the Father with humility, lifting up his desires above our own. To pray for our daily needs and not take them for granted. To let go of our grudges and forgive others so we might be forgiven ourselves. And to admit that we can't resist temptation on our own strength, but that we must lean on God's strength to see us through. So as we go into our daily prayers, let's remember to approach the Father without pride, but with the humility he deserves. Because prayer is not about us, it's about him.